listening to the Bible 126 show. We're in the 16th session and final session of a review of the book of Leviticus, and we've really covered the 27 chapters uh, as of the last session. So we have this session sort of to stand back and uh, review the book. We'll be reviewing it with the, with the advantage of some PowerPoint slides, and when we publish the commentary in its CD-ROM form, uh, the PowerPoint slides will be part of the package. It's a difficult book to summarize because it consists of a, a long concatenation of details, and each of the details are very relevant, and we went through those, most of them, uh, during a review. But trying to summarize that's a little tricky. So one of the ways that I'd like to try to deal, deal with this is, is to take a look at some of the highlights we saw, and then, but then we'll target on 10 basic lessons from the book. Leviticus is one of these books that just reading it often isn't very fruitful, because it really needs to be studied rather than just read. Many people regard it as the most important book in the Bible because it's the only book that focuses on holiness. It describes the requirements for fellowship with God, which is holiness. It goes, of course, through the precepts of His law, standards of conduct, and so forth, and also the penalties attached to those violations. But it also establishes the ground for fellowship with God, and that ground is sacrifice. And the sacrifices, the detailed sacrifices that we went through in the book, of course, all each in their own way point to the work or the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. And of course, a large part of the book also highlights this whole idea of a walk of fellowship, separation. And uh, uh, God calls us to be separate. We may not be under the law in the, in, in the mosaic sense on the one hand, and yet we learn a great deal uh, about the need for separation by the study of this book. We went through the Levitical offerings, of course, in the early chapters. And we found that there were some voluntary ones, the sweet savor offerings that were to God, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering. There were also the compulsory ones, the non-sweet savor. Those are the ones that really are for, for our benefit, the sin offering and the trespass offering. Uh, having gone through all the, the uh, details of these different offerings, one of the things that we spent some time on in the book, especially when we got to chapter 23, is the calendar. In addition to all the offerings and all the ordinances that were laid out for the priests and the rest, one of the really provocative aspects of the book of Leviticus, one of the things that uh, I hope that we'll all carry away with us, is this whole idea that the Jews' catechism is this calendar. Rabbi Hirsch said that many, many years ago, and it's a very, very provocative perspective to recognize that the, the God's calendar, which is detailed in large measure in the book of Leviticus, carries with it uh, not only commemorative aspects, but also prophetic aspects. We notice, of course, all through the Bible, especially Leviticus, there's everything's heptatic, there's groups of sevens. We, of course, are familiar with the week of days, where we have the seventh day of Shabbat. We have the week of weeks, which climax in Shavuot. We have the week of months, which, of course, make up the religious year, from Nisan to Tishri. 
And uh, the week of years, we learned that there's actually a week of years, the Sabbath for the land. We, we also discovered that when you have seven weeks of years, the next year is a jubilee year, which also has some speculative prophetic aspects. And in the jubilee year, all land reverted to its original owners, all slaves go free, all debts are forgiven, and it's, it's called the time of the restitution of all things. In fact, Peter uses that very phrase in his second sermon in Acts 3, and using it in, in the sense of the millennium, when the, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And so the jubilee year, in a prophetic sense, points to the millennium in that sense. All land will revert to its owners, all slaves go free, all debts are forgiven, the land of rest, the time of restitution of all things. And so we take a great deal of interest in that, and I won't go rebuild the whole thing. But something else that I'd like to highlight about these appointed times, my memory doesn't serve me well whether we really got into this uh, during our, uh, our review of the book, but I think it's worth putting in here as we're trying to build a perspective. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, there's an interesting verse. God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. We read that as we read the creation account in the early chapters of Genesis. But as usual, as you can guess, when you look behind any one of these things, there are discoveries to be made. The word translated seasons is hamoyadim. It really means the appointed times. And that's an interesting word. Scientists have taken that word and searched for it with a computer in the Torah. And it turns out, well, a couple of things before we get into that. Um, the appointed times, it turns out, if you're Jewish, you're aware of the fact that there are 70 uh, hamoyadim. There are 52 Sabbaths of a year. There are also seven days of Passover, and we're using that term then in its connotative sense, in its related feast days, Feast of Unleavened Bread and so forth. There's the uh, Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks at Pentecost. There's Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, the first of Tishri. It is celebrated today as a two-day feast, but that's been added in about the 5th century. Originally in the scripture it was a one-day feast. Uh, Yom Kippur, of course, the Day of Atonement on the 10th of Tishri. And then there's the seven days of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And then there's the final day, the Day of Assembly, which is Shimi Atzeret. The point is, that if you add those up, 52 Sabbaths, 7 days of Passover, 7 days of Sukkot, and then the four other singles, you end up with 70. What makes this so interesting is that word appointed times, if you analyze statistically the frequency of those Hebrew letters as a cryptologist would, you would expect in the 78,000 letters of the book of Genesis that by sheer statistical accident, that word would show up as an equidistant letter sequence. In other words, at some uh, uh, level of separation, every uh, second letter, third letter, fourth letter, we can have a computer chase all the possibilities. You would expect that five different times that particular sequence of letters would show up in 78,000 letters. But fascinatingly, as the equidistant letter sequence, it appears only once. Now, that's statistically odd in the sense of its focus, you follow me, rather than if it appeared four or five times, that would be acceptable statistically. It appears only once, which is surprising, but more than that, the interval at which it appears is 70, the very number of the Hamoyadim, and it also is centered on Genesis 1.14, the verse that I opened this discussion with. And the odds of all this happening has been estimated at over better than 70 million to one of this being accidental. So this is one of those 
interesting things as you constantly poke at the Torah with the computer, you constantly find uh, these uh, uh, ostensibly evidences of design. And obviously these are controversial. Some like to argue, well, it's just accidental. But the, the expectation of it being accidental turns out to be mathematically estimatable and pretty remote. The Feasts of Israel. We have seven feasts of Israel in the Bible, in the Torah. The spring feast, the first month, month of Nisan, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Feast of First Fruits. We also, in the seventh month of the year, we have the fall feasts in the month of Tishri, Feast of Trumpets that opens the year. It coincidental with Rosh Hashanah, the civil new year of that, but the religious year, it's the seventh month of the year. We have the Feast of Trumpets on the first of Tishri, we have Yom Kippur on the tenth of Tishri, and we have the Feast of Tabernacles on the fifteenth. What is interesting is that these, as we've studied in this, as we study the book of Leviticus and also Deuteronomy and Numbers and other comments on this, that the first three feasts appear to be prophetic of the first coming of Jesus Christ. He was crucified on Passover. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the Levitical symbolism, which we went through, those are prophetic as well as historical. Feast of First Fruits, which is the morning after Shabbat, after Passover, in other words, Sunday morning. And that's, of course, when Christ rose. In the fall, there's a general recognition of most scholars that the fall feasts allude to the second coming in one way or another. There's some differences of view on the subtleties, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles being key prophetic things. Well, right between these two groups of feasts, there's a very strange feast, the Feast of Shavuot. And again, it's the uh, it's uh, 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits plus one. We call it the Feast of Pentecost from the Greek but the Feast of Weeks. And it's a very strange feast because it's the only feast in the Bible in which leavened bread is ordained, which gives it a Gentile complexion. At the Feast of Weeks, the book of Ruth is read, which is also that book which prophetically alludes to the kinsman redeemer gathering his bride. Passover we talked a lot about. The lambs are examined on the 10th of Nisan. That's the very day that he was riding the donkey into Jerusalem, presenting himself to be examined. Uh, it, he was offered between the evenings. Remember, Friday the 13th is unlucky on the Gentile calendar because that's the Gentile side of the Passover. That evening was Friday the 13th, but it was the 14th of, of uh, Nisan to the Jews. Not a bone broken. There's dozens of specifications that Jesus fulfilled on our Passover. And both John and Paul allude to Jesus as our Passover very explicitly. So this is not a contrivance of any kind. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Is, leaven's always a symbol of sin. We talked a lot about that all through uh, the, the book of Leviticus. It's interesting, at Passover, there are three matzahs. One is broken and hidden. And uh, it's a, uh, there's a lot of symbolism, just even in today's uh, uh, rendering of the Passover ceremony. And we find the whole idea actually having its origin very early in the Scriptures. Remember Joseph and, his, and the baker and the wine steward that had the dreams that Joseph interpreted. The three days are prominent in those interpretations, and uh, so on. And in the Passover, there are four cups, bringing out, delivering, blessing, and taking out. And Paul tells us that it was the cup of blessing that Jesus uh, took and administered the Lord's Supper. And there are some scholars that view the Passover as being incomplete, that after that they sang a hymn and went to Gethsemane. The fourth one uh, is the one that he will share with us at the rapture. He said that his lips would not touch the fruit of the vine until we're all gathered together. And so, uh, interesting, There's uh, as you study the details of any of these observations, you find uh, many, many uh, allusions in a prophetic sense. Feast of first fruits, of course. The morrow after is Sabbath, after Passover. Passover is nailed to the calendar. It's a different day of the week, whatever year you're talking about. But the Sabbath after, then the next day is 
the Feast of First Fruits. The ultimate first fruits is the morning that these two girls were walking and discovering an empty tomb. And uh, I love to look at the, when did the flood of Noah end? We talked about that, I think. The ark rested in Genesis 8, 4. The ark rested on the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the mountains of Ararat. And to unravel this little thing, you really need to understand that there are two calendars in the Jewish community. Rosh Hashanah in the fall kicks off the civil year, what I'll call the Genesis calendar. When you get to Exodus, God says, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year to you. So he ordains the religious calendar there. And that first month, that he's talking about Passover, that's the month of Nizan, it's in the spring. So if you lay out the Jewish calendar, the old calendar, the Genesis calendar, Tishri was the first month, Nisan was the seventh month. Tishri is in, the, is in our fall, usually September, October on our calendar. Month of Nisan is March, April, typically on our calendar. But in, in Exodus, God says, I want you to make Nisan the beginning of months. So they have the religious year starts with Nisan, the Passover month. And because it does, it turns out, it's inter interestingly, that Tishri is the seventh month. And it concludes, if you will, the religious year. That's where the last three feasts are in. So it's interesting, the Feast of Shavuot, counting the Omar, as they call it, 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits, you then have, uh, it's the only use of leavened bread, and it's prophetic of the birth of the church. Acts 2, the church was born uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Shavuot. Now, uh, there is a mystery that I think is very interesting. This guy Enoch, as we study Enoch in the Scripture, the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it was uttered before the flood of Noah. You won't find it in Genesis. You'll find it in Jude, verses 15 and 16. But there's a legend among the Hebrews that I'm trying to track down the basis of, and that is that Enoch was born on the day that they observed Shavuot. But what's also interesting, they believe he was translated or raptured, if you will, on his birthday. He was obviously raptured before the judgment of the flood. But the fact that he was, that it was, there's a, uh, probably a, uh, geometrical argument upon which they base this interesting view that Enoch was translated on his birthday, and that birthday is the day they later worship uh, as the Feast of Shavuot. You can't wonder, you wonder if the Jewish clock will restart on the same feast day that it was stopped, if you will. The Feast of Trumpets is the first of the fall feasts. It's coincident with Rosh Hashanah, but recognize that one is Rosh Hashanah's civil, Feast of Trumpets is the religious uh, one. And many people try to tie the feast, the last trump, to the Feast of Trumpets. There are varying views on that. It certainly has nothing to do with the seventh trumpet judgment of Revelation. Many people get confused, recognize the seven trumpets in Revelation are not the final trumpets. There are lots of trumpets all through the millennium which follows. The seven trumpets judgments are a separate issue. It's interesting, the Feast of Trumpets followed by Yomim Norim, that is days of affliction, which lead, of course, to the, the most solemn day of the entire Jewish calendar. That's Yom Kippur, the day of atonement day of national repentance. It's the only day the high priest is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies after great ceremonial preparation. It's also the day we have the scapegoat thing that we read about in Leviticus, and so on. Five days later, we have the Feast of Booths, Shukut, or uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Some people speculate that the transfiguration that occurs in Matthew 17 occurred about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles because that's why Peter wants to build three booths. That's been a suggestion. But uh, on this feast is when they leave. They spent uh, a week in these temporary shelters in their backyard. They build a temporary dwelling, and it's specified so that you have to be able to see the stars through the roof, and you have to have the wind blow through the walls. It's intended to remind them of the wilderness uh, endurances. 
at the climax of the feast, they leave their temporary dwellings for their permanent ones, and that's why many people see this as uh, predictive of the establishment of God's kingdom. We also, just to review something that's uh, perhaps more uh, conjectural, but of prophetic interest, when we got to chapter 26, we made reference to the strange prophecy of Ezekiel, of the 430 years of judgment, in the first eight verses of Ezekiel 4. Seventy of those years we know Babylon captivity are accounted for, but that still leaves 360 that are not accounted for, and they don't fit any particular rendering of, of uh, Jewish history. But it's interesting that in Leviticus 26, four different times, God hammers away at the, if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Well, after the Babylonian captivity, we've got these 360 account for. Some scholars have suggested, gee, maybe we're supposed to multiply the 360 by 7, which comes to 2,520. Then the question is, what do you do with the 2,520 years? Does that fit any kind of history? Well, it's approximately the time of the diaspora, but it's interesting. If you try to render the 2,520 uh, years of 360 days into 365-day years, like on our calendar, then you end up with 2,483 uh, years, 9 months, and 21 days. And I won't go through all the arithmetic here. It'll be in the notes. But the point is, uh, uh, the 2,520 uh, years, 360 is uh, 907,200 days. And if you render that in our calendar, it's, it's uh, 2,483 plus 9 months plus 21 days. Well, when we studied the Babylonian captivity, we remembered that there's two different periods of time that are associated with that. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar triggers off the captivity of the nation. They rebel. A large number of them were taken captive, but Jerusalem was a vassal city of the, uh, of the Babylonians. But they rebelled, so it was a second siege, and again he took captives, put, on a, put up a different king. They rebel a third time. By this time he's had it with them, and he levels the place just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel had predicted. He, they warned him if they don't yield to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the instrument of God, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. So the point is, the Babylonian captivity, the servitude of the nation, ends with the decree of Cyrus, when Cyrus conquers Babylon. And we studied that, of course, because that, uh, for a number of reasons. The servitude of the nation, then, is turns out to be 70 years to the day, incidentally. But Jerusalem, the desolations of Jerusalem were also predicted to be 70 years, but they're not coterminous. The desolations of Jerusalem start with the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroys the city, and they go until Nehemiah, gets the authority to rebuild the city. They were allowed to go back under Cyrus to rebuild the temple, but they didn't have the authority to protect themselves. And that's what the whole book of Ezra is, the troubles they tried trying to build the temple with all the problems. To get to Nehemiah, he got the authority to go there and, and build the city. So the desolations of Jerusalem are measured from the third siege to the building of the wall. Both of those periods are 70 years long, and many scholars superficially treat them as synonyms. No, they're not. They're not coterminous. They're both 70 years, but they have different beginnings and endings. Well, what do you do with this 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days? The, and, of course, the desolation of Jerusalem, tr the triggering decree there is Artaxerxes Longimanus, and that, of course, is what triggers the 70 weeks of Daniel. We've studied that in, you know, in, in very great detail. But if you take the 2,520 years from the servitude of the nation, interestingly, you come to the restoration of the nation on May 14th of 1948, which is kind of interesting. That still could be a coincidence, but it's too provocative to ignore. If you take the 2,520 years from the third siege, count the desolations, and come to the uh, decree of Artaxerxes, you come to the restoration of Jerusalem June 7th of 1967, which is exciting stuff. Something else that came up in our study, it actually came 
from a footnote of one of the classic commentaries on the book of Leviticus. I was preparing for the, the, the Levitical study and came across uh, this footnote in Andrew Bonar's commentary. And uh, because that, I want to include a sort of a excursion here on um, the Akidah, Abraham's offering of Isaac. In Genesis 22, we remember that Abraham was told, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, get in the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I'll tell thee of. And uh, by the time you get to Genesis 22, Abraham had learned his lesson, so he, the next, very next morning, he takes uh, uh, two of his young men along with Isaac and himself and this donkey, and they, um, they go to the place where God told them. And they travel three days, and they get to this region. And the two young men stay at the bottom of the hill, Abraham and Isaac head up the hill, and he tells the young men that I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So Abraham is either stalling them or expecting that Isaac, despite the fact that he's going to be offered, will be resurrected. We know that Abraham did believe God, that God would resurrect Isaac because he promised Isaac would have children. And in, in Hebrews 11, verse 19, that very specific point is made. But it's interesting they... Uh, they, he he uh, put the wood on Isaac's back and they go up the hill. Isaac says, Father, where's, where's the lamb? And I love what Abram said. He says, My God, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so he had both of them together. When I read that many years ago, I thought, well, he's just giving the kid a stall until they get up there. Until I read it more closely. God will provide who? Himself. A lamb. And of course, uh, I think most of us recognize that it's that very spot. 2,000 years later, another father did offer his son as an offering for sin. And as we look at the, uh, the topology of Mount Moriah, we know that Mount Moriah is a ridge system starting at the base of a place called Ophel, which was Salem, and Melchizedek was the king and priest there in Genesis 14. Abram offered, obviously didn't offer it at the base of the hill. He went to the top. But, but Mount Zion, is, uh, it, it's a ridge system. To the uh, west is Mount Zion, separated by the Tarokan Valley. To the east is Mount of Olives, and there is a, separated by the Kidron Valley, and then there's a Hinnom Valley to the south. But if uh, the base is a place called Ophel today, or it's the city of David. Uh, but as you go up the hill, you get to about, starts about 600 meters above sea level. You get to 741 meters, you get to the thrashing floor of Aruna, which David later will purchase, and, and it'll become the site of the temple. There's a Hebrew tradition, that's where Abram offered Isaac, but that's a tradition. This, that is not the peak of the hill. The peak of the hill continues until 777 meters, and if you expand that a little bit, it's a place called Golgotha. And, uh, and that's where another father did offer his son as an offering for sin. Now, it's interesting. Abraham knew he was acting on prophecy. He calls the place Jehovah Jireh, or the, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. It's a prophetic label. Abraham knew he was acting on prophecy. Now, it's interesting. Andrew Bonar points out in his comments on Leviticus that several times in the book of Leviticus, it speaks of killing it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. I want you to notice that word northward. And of course, this is all north of the temple, just as they did it north of the tabernacle. And uh, something else is specified many times in Leviticus, Leviticus 4, 6, 10, and also in Numbers, shall carry forth without the camp unto a clean place. That which was offered, what was left, had to be buried in a Levitically clean place. And uh, that has specifications. Now, what makes that complicated, what, what Bonar points out in his footnote, in Isaiah 53.9, as we study the book of Isaiah, we know that from, in the book of Isaiah, some people call it the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Uh, there is a description of the crucifixion of Christ that summarizes it probably more eloquently than all of Paul's epistles put together. 
But in those 12 verses, there's an interesting verse. Verse 9, it says, He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And I remember I've read that even as a teenager. felt, well, he made his grave with the, the wicked being the two thieves on the cross. Except Bonar makes the point. The word rick, uh, wicked, by the way, is rasha. It's a, a plural. And the rich is singular. So he's buried among the wicked, and yet he's with the rich in his death. And, and that's singular. It's a specific rich. And Bonar points out that the grammar, this is a statement of the burial, not the fact that they died on two crosses, that he has made his grave with the wicked. He was buried among the malefactors. Well, the dilemma you get into is if it's among the malefactors, how could his grave be in a clean place and fulfill Leviticus? Bonar concludes that it was carved out of a rock. It was a new tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, a new tomb. So being carved out of a rock never used before, it's a Levitically clean, even though it's on a hill, part of a hill, that the malefactors are buried at. Well, when you get to uh, some background on Joseph of Arimathea, in Luke 23, it says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. In other words, he personally, Joseph of Arimathea, defended Christ before the Sanhedrin. Because he did that, his life was forfeit. He went underground. I'll show you in a minute. He was there Arimathea, the city of the Jews, and he himself waited for the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting, Joseph Arimathea, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a disciple. He was driven into concealment due to the plots of his life for having defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin openly. So his appearance before Pilate to beg the body was a surprise because he was coming. He was surfacing. It was a shock to the Jewish leadership. If you read John 19.38, it says, After this, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. If you look at the word that's translated secretly, it's not an adverb, it's an adjective. Only one letter difference in the uh, Greek uh, text. In other words, it's not an adverb, it's an adjective. He didn't... he. He wasn't a disciple secretly. He was secreted. In other words, he was hidden. He was, he was underground is the point. It's a subtle difference, but it's one that we most of us miss because we're victims, of course, of, of our imperfect translations. And of course, the uh, next few verses, there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night. That was from, a reference from John 3, of course. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100-pound weight. That's a lot of stuff. Then they took the body of Jesus, wound it in the linen clothes with spices after the manner of Jesus is buried. Now in, now here's a key verse, key verse. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. You can actually identify about 18 details from the text that leads you to the place that we visit when we're there called Golgotha. Just outside the gate, just to the north. At the same time, it's literally just a few yards from a garden. That garden has a cistern of 250,000 gallons, meaning it was a gigantic piece of property under one owner. And the grave of the owner is there, carved in the rock. Uh, there's literally uh, as many as 18 different details from the text that, that fit. So when you visit the garden tomb in uh, Jerusalem, they present it very softly. They don't insist that it's the, they say it's you know, probably very much like the one. They, they, they undersell it. But if you've studied it carefully and you study scripture, there's a number of us that uh, believe it is literally the tomb for lots of reasons. So Golgotha, new tomb out of a rock, on the very spot the criminals were put to death. 
The stony sides of this new tomb would conform to the Levitical necessity for a clean place. And uh, his dead body was with the rich man and the, with the wicked in the hour of his death, both. And his grave is property of a rich man, and yet the rocks were a partition between his tomb and that of the other Calvary manufacturers. Whenever I get into this, of course, I always reminded of an insight that Chuck Smith presented one Easter. He pointed out there's an unrecorded conversation between Joseph and Pilate, because Joseph is begging the body, and Pilate's shocked. He's shocked. He says, you're the richest man in the area, and yet you... Uh, and you have this brand new tomb for your family, and you're going to give it to this criminal? And Joe says, oy vey, it's just for the weekend. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I always have to work that in. Now the point is, as I was reading this in Bonar's commentary, and having visited this place almost once a year for 20 years, it's very familiar ground. And uh, as Bonar develops all the details, they all fit so perfectly, it shocked me to realize something, that Bonar's commentary was published in 1846. The garden tomb wasn't discovered until 1883. General Charles Gordon, he was commissioned second lieutenant in 1852, served with distinguished uh, service in the Crimean War in the, in the uh, middle 50s. He distinguished himself in the Taipan Rebellion against the Manchu dynasty and came out with great honors from the emperor. He had all kinds of diplomatic military engineering missions in England and Europe in the 60s, early 70s. He became the governor of the Sudan in 77. He served the British government in India, China, South Africa, and so on. But he happened to be in, in Jerusalem, and looking at his hotel room, he saw this hill that looked sort of like a skull, and it's because of that insight that he pursued it, and they discovered the garden tomb. In fact, many commentaries speak of it derisively as Gordon's Calvary. It was his contrivance, they feel. Uh, most of us who've studied it more closely think it has much more legitimacy than, than certainly more legitimacy than the so-called Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was, which was an impulse of Constantine's mother. But anyway, what startled me to realize is that Bonar put together his perception of it being carved out of a rock and all those details from the Levitical text. It was 40 years later that... Uh, the tomb was actually discovered fitting those requirements. That blew me away one morning when I discovered that. I just, I thought that was kind of fun. We talked about the offering of Isaac. Two chapters later, it's interesting to point out that uh, Abraham commissions Eliezer to get a bride for Isaac. Eliezer qualifies her ultimately by a well, you know the story, and she agrees to marry the bridegroom she's never met. He gives her gifts as they caravan back to uh, Judea, and uh, he joins, ultimately joins the bridegroom at the well of the High Roy at the end of chapter 24. What makes this so provocative, everybody recognizes Genesis 22, that Abraham is a type of the father, Isaac a type of the son, in that modeling, that anticipation of the uh, crucifixion. In Genesis 24, we have a parallel thing going on. Here again, Abraham is in the type of the father. He's commissioning Eliezer, who is his, in effect his business partner, uh, to get a bride, go out and, and gather a bride for, for Isaac. And he gets her, qualifies her by a well, and so forth. What's interesting is that uh, you can't tell what his name is from Genesis 24. You have to go back to Genesis 15 to discover that the name of this guy is Eliezer, which means comforter. Comforter. So again, we have a fascinating parallel here where Abram's the father. Eliezer is modeling in the type of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, the bride, of course, being the bride of, of the uh, bridegroom, and so on. The well of Lahai Roy is the well of the living water. Now, one of the interesting things, you go back to Genesis 22... And uh, notice something interesting. In Genesis 22, verse 19, Abram returned to his young men. They threw with the project up on top of the hill. 
Abraham returns to his young men, these two guys at the base of the hill with the donkey. They rose up and went together to Beersheba. That's a three-day journey back home. And one of the interesting questions is, where is Isaac? If you read this verse uh, in context, you naturally assume that Abram and Isaac joined the two guys down the hill and they took the donkey. They all went home, three-day journey home. But that's not what it says. Technically, Dino Taylor says Abraham returned to his young men. And if you examine the scripture, you'll discover that the person of Isaac is edited out of the record until he's united with his bride in chapter 24, verse 62. And I'm fascinated with that because I personally view the Holy Spirit as diddling with the text in such a way as not to do violence with the narrative, but to, to nudge it in a way that makes it fit the model. He's edited out the, personally edited out of the record until he's united with the, with the, the well of High Roy, two chapters later. The well of High Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. One integrated design. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. One book. But uh, as we try to stand back now and just take a look at the major lessons of Leviticus, there's a theme that goes all the way through, in fact, ten of them. The first is the theme is our God is a holy God. Whenever we minimize the holiness of God, we minimize human sinfulness, and we therefore minimize the... Uh, work of Christ on the cross. The holiness of God is the main thing here. God's holiness means He's a total separate apartness from anything that is sinful. He's different from that which is common. And that's, that's part of what the Leviticus is trying to get across to us with all its details. And uh, He is separate from anything that defiles. The second lesson that we learn from Leviticus is not only is God holy, He wants His people to be holy. Eight times in the scripture says, Be holy, for I am holy. He calls his people a holy nation. And so that's, that's one of the main burdens of the book of Leviticus. And where does holiness begin? It begins at the altar. It didn't begin with a prayer meeting, a praise service, or a sharing meeting. It begins with an altar where innocent sacrifices shed their blood for guilty sinners. It's done in type, of course, all through history, following the Levitical ordinances but all intentionally pointing to the real ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's our sins that killed His only Son. Our holiness depends entirely on His completed work, not on our sincere resolutions or our religious habits or our theological knowledge or how many Bible verses we know, none of that. Our holiness depends entirely on His completed work. And uh, we measure our holiness by our recognition and hatred of sin. You want to measure how mature are you spiritually? How much do you hate sin? Do you really have a focus on that? So that leads to the next thing that Leviticus tries to get across, that holiness involves obedience and discipline. Jesus did not call us the lips of the world. He called us to be the light of the world. Holiness does not involve bringing an offering to the altar and then going away unchanged. The whole procedure was intentionally to shock us and to realize that sin has a price, to be sensitive to that price. God instructed his people to obey the rules and regulations, to discern what was clean and unclean, and do what, what's right and wrong in his sight, not ours. It's interesting that in the book of Judges, the indictment of that nadir of immorality uh, was everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's an indictment in the Bible. That's considered the worst, the ultimate darkness. Everyone did what was right in their eyes. No, we need to do what's right in God's eyes. It's interesting that the very 
indictment of the book of Judges characterizes our world today, value of relativism. Okay, the next one, next fifth letter lesson is uh, holiness must be from God to be genuine. Holiness must be from God to be genuine. We need to be sensitive to the possibility of false zeal. They have an Abihu, and also Ananias and Sapphira violated the holy law of God in details, little details. No, God took it very seriously. It's impossible to imitate true spirituality. But God's not mocked. And sentimental religious feelings are no assurance that we are pleasing God. We have to discern Satan's counterfeits, sometimes very elegant counterfeits, but we need to discern those. And God's word, not experience, God's word is the only reliable yardstick. Boy, the one thing, uh, we're not under the law in the Levitical sense, on the one hand. On the other hand, you do clearly get the message that God means what he says and says what he means. He's very specific in what his expectations are. Holiness involves priestly mediation. All believers are now priests, but we must come to God through our mediating high priest. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There can be no growth in holiness except through fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's the only path of holiness. We're not under the law, but in a sense we're under even a more severe law, a law of intent, a law of the heart. With the exception of coveting, the Ten Commandments are operationally defined. You can tell if they happen externally. Coveting is the one that's the only one of the ten that really is in the, in the heart. But Jesus straightened us out on that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Remember, seven and out. That it's the heart, the intent that God is looking to. And that puts us under an even more severe law than the Mosaic law in the sense of expectation. We learn about God from the Word of God, but we get the, our fear of God through our devotional life. And that's probably the weak link in our culture, even in the Christian culture, is a, a shortage in the devotional life. Now that leads to another thing. Lack of holiness affects our land. One of the things Leviticus brought out is that the welfare of the nation directly derived from their uh, lack of holiness or lack thereof. So sin is not an individual activity. It's not limited to an individual activity, affecting only the sinner. You know that uh, idolatry and sexual immorality, of course, are completing our our land and are contagious, and tragically contagious with our youth, especially. Leviticus eighteen hammered away on that. I'm always reminded vividly of Thomas Jefferson's insight. He says, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. Our holiness will affect the future of this country. And uh, judgment is coming and it will begin at the house of the Lord. Okay, we're down to number eight. Holiness is not a private affair. We're part of a worshiping community, just as Israel was supposed to be. The parallels there are real. The church is not Israel, Israel is not the church, but there are some interesting parallels. One of the dangers today is an emphasis on individual Christianity. There's some issues, there's some validity to that in some respects, and yet it's very dangerous because the, the believer cannot go it alone. And uh, the failure of us as a community, and the failures are many. The failures are from the pulpits, the failures are within the body, 
Everyone that's a believer has been given a spiritual gift, and if you're not using your spiritual gift, you're defrauding the body. We need the help and encouragement and support of the believers around us. It's essential for our own survival. Of course, holiness, one of the aspects of holiness is it glorifies the Lord. And if we had discussion groups here, if we were breaking up into small groups, I'd say, you know, uh, that's an interesting point of discussion. How can that be? See, since only God can make a holy life, then a godly life is a trophy of His grace, and it's a tribute to His power. If we exhibit holiness, it's a glory to God because He's the only source. And only God gets the glory when people really see that Christ has been uh, reproduced in us. And by the way, we may not see the changes in us, but others do. And God can see them as well as others. Holiness means living to please God alone. And this is one of the principles that Jesus emphasized in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is that we live our lives before the eyes of God to please Him alone and not before other people to impress them. Dangerous walk there. So often, if we're sensitive and honest, our good behavior is to be paraded before others, show how spiritual we are. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's a counterfeit. And we are to concentrate on building character, not just reputation. Because we are His workmanship. And that reality will bring Him glory, Him glory, not just the appearance of these things. Book of Leviticus. Many scholars call it the most important book of the Bible. Because we're under the law and we need to obey all those technicalities, no. But it certainly is the only book really focusing on God's holiness. And so ends this difficult book, really. It's not a book you can just read. It really takes some diligent study to get behind. But hopefully, in the 16 sessions we have had, we have given you enough grasp of the book so that you have a flavor of where it leads. And I encourage you to take a concordance or any help you can and just review the notes and indulge in a serious study of the book of Leviticus. And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you that you are a holy God. We thank you, Father, that you're also a God that delights in making and keeping promises. We thank you that you're a God that can be trusted, a God that can be relied upon. And Father, we do come before you with a new understanding of our own sinfulness a sinfulness that we cannot repair. It's not in our nature to do so. We know, Father, that we, by our own efforts, can never reach the standard that you would have of us. And yet, Father, we thank you that through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, that our failures, all of them, have been paid for, have been atoned for, and have been removed. We thank you also, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit that by walking in the Spirit we can indeed be delivered from the power of sin. Not only the penalty of sin on the cross, but the power of sin as we go forward. We thank you, Father, not only for the Word of God, but we thank you for the God of the Word. We thank you, Father, that you are who you are. And we thank you, Father, that you have provided 
clearly a basis by which we can have a relationship with you, not by any merit that we have, but entirely on the merit of the offering that was made on our behalf. But Father, we would petition you through your Holy Spirit to increase in each of us a consciousness, an awareness, a sensitivity to our own sinfulness. We thank you, Father, that you provided such a ready remedy and such incredible power available for the asking. Well, we ask it, Father. We pray, Father, that you would reignite each one of us in a passion for your word and a quest for holiness, Father, your holiness. We pray, Father, through your spirit, you would make of us what you would have of us, Father, that we might be lights to a hurting world, Father. As we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.